think this accident really hit home with a lot of backcountry users because it was a lot of decisions that most of us could see ourselves making, being in lower angle terrain, traveling one at a time, skiing the slope multiple times, and not seeing any obvious red flags on that slope. Hello, everyone. Shanti here, along with Mary. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. And in particular, welcome to the winter series of the Out and Back podcast as we gear up and get ready to head out into the backcountry for our winter adventures. Last season was a devastating year for avalanches. From California to New Hampshire, Washington to Colorado, more fatalities occurred in the U.S. than in any other year before. And in Utah, a tragic accident took the lives of four experienced backcountry skiers on a lower angle slope they believed to be safe. How did this happen? Well, hindsight, they say, is always 2020, but in this case, the answers aren't so obvious. These skiers had checked the avalanche forecast that day. They assessed the snow conditions, they carried all the right gear, and they made a conservative travel plan for the day. Maybe some of us look at this scenario and see ourselves in similar situations in the past. So where did things go wrong? Avalanche forecaster Nikki Champion from the Utah Avalanche Center was part of the team that investigated this accident, and today, she's here to take us through the details. We'll be taking a close look at the conditions and circumstances so we can learn more about avalanches and how we can avoid them. And as a snow scientist, part of Nikki's job at the Utah Avalanche Center is to collect information for and issue the daily avalanche forecast for backcountry areas in Utah. Checking the avalanche forecast before you head out the door is an essential step in planning a safe tour. And guess what? It's never been easier because right now, Gaia GPS has partnered with Avalanche.org to bring you all the avalanche forecasts across the U.S. and Canada, wherever they are available. To check your area, pull up the avalanche forecast layer, zoom into the zone you plan to ski, and then tap on the map to get a link to the daily forecast. What? You don't have Gaia GPS yet? Well, you're in luck. Because right now, if you go to GaiaGPS.com podcast, you can get 40% off on a Gaia GPS premium membership through the end of 2021. That's G-A-I-A-G-P-S.com slash podcast for 40% off on a premium membership with Gaia GPS, the gold standard of backcountry navigation. And with that, let's get to learning with Avalanche forecaster Nikki Champion. Nikki, why don't you uh, start off by telling us uh, who you are and uh, what you do? Great. So my name is Nikki Champion. I currently work as an avalanche forecaster for the Utah Avalanche Center and a mountain guide for RMI expeditions in the summer. Um, I'm primarily based in Salt Lake. I forecast for the Salt Lake, Provo, and Ogden area mountains. Nice. And how exactly uh, did you get into uh, like a- avalanche forecasting and ultimately working for the uh, Utah Avalanche Center? Yeah, it's kind of a windy road. I feel like it's a career that everybody does things a little bit differently. For me, I went to school initially for engineering in Colorado. Um, I was an alpine ski racer, so I knew I wanted to spend time in the mountains. Uh, That transition from alpine ski racing kind of went to backcountry skiing. Um, I started backcountry skiing right away my freshman year, working for the Outdoor Rec Center, getting involved in entry-level avalanche courses. Somewhere along that line, the initial school I was at in Colorado wasn't a great fit for me, and I ended up transferring to Montana State University, and that's kind of when things really aligned. I got connected with a graduate student who was doing snow science research, primarily in propagation saw tests, and he just needed a field assistant, somebody to dig a bunch of holes that had at least an avalanche level two. And luckily I fit that bill. I was great at shoveling and I could definitely dig holes. Uh, So I started going in the field with him. We were doing, you know, five to 10 full profile pits a day. Every day I could get out with him. And it was there that I saw the connection between um, engineering and snow science. And it kind of made me realize maybe I didn't hate engineering. Maybe I just hated what I was doing at the time and started pursuing this career path of snow science Uh, From there, I started doing my own research um, in both the Earth Sciences Department as well as the uh, Civil Engineering Department in the Sub-Zero Science and Engineering Lab. During that time, I was working as a field partner for the Gallatin. I was teaching avalanche classes, and then I have and had been guiding mountaineering in the Pacific Northwest. So I was spending all year on snow shoveling. Once I finished up my degree in Civil at Montana State, I headed up to the Chugach, where I was lucky enough to intern with all those lovely ladies and get some mentorship. And then following my time at the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center, I landed the gig here in Utah. So yeah. You said all those lovely ladies up at the Chugach. Who are you talking about? Yeah. So at the time that I was up at the Chugach National Forest 
um, avalanche information set. It was um, Wendy Wagner, Alf Johnson Bloom, and Heather Pham. So it was three ladies at the forecasting center. It was kind of the first time that I'd had a really strong female mentorship um, in my career. I've always been really fortunate to have a lot of great mentors, but this was the first time that I had a bunch of really strong female mentors. What an amazing opportunity. Um, from there, where all have you worked in the avalanche forecast realm? Yeah, so I started in Bozeman, Montana. I was working as a field partner and avalanche educator for the Gallatin National Forest Avalanche Center. Um, after the Gallatin, I went up to the Chugach for just a season. And then I was lucky enough to land the forecasting position at the Utah Avalanche Center. So just those three locations are my main bread and butter. Perfect. So Nikki, you know, I take advantage of all those avalanche forecasts and all the reports when I go backcountry skiing. And maybe I take them for granted a little bit. What all goes into making one of those reports? Yeah, creating the avalanche forecast, it's obviously kind of the key component of our job. None of us do it alone. There's a ton of moving parts that go into it. So kind of the easiest way to explain it would maybe be like an average week for me or any of our forecasters. Here in Utah, we have five forecasters for the Salt Lake, Provo, and Ogden area mountains, just because there's a lot of users in that area. And that's kind of where we we see the most amount of avalanches reported and also the most amount of incidents. So what goes into putting out the forecast every day in the winter? Most of us are out in the field two to four days a week before we write our forecast. And what we're looking for there is we're looking at recent avalanche activity. We're going to an aspect or an elevation that none of our coworkers have been very recently. We're getting pit profiles. So we're looking at that layering um, that we expect to see from the weather systems prior, or if we see or heard something unique in an observation, we're going out into the field and we're examining that. Once we've put those field days together, uh, whether that be looking at a recent avalanche or looking at an aspect we haven't spent much time on, we go in the night before we write our forecasts. We look at all the weather um, that we're expected to see for the next couple days, the weather we saw previously, and we go through all the observations from the public. Uh, we're super lucky to have a huge observer base here in Utah. So professional users, recreational users, all of these people submit observations, everything from, you know, the snow conditions they saw, like soft pow, that's, that gives us some information to these professional observers, giving us a little bit more in-depth on what they saw on their tour. So we take all that information, we see what the ski resorts saw during the day, and we start to get an idea of what we're going to be writing the next morning before we even wake up. Um, the following morning, we get up uh, bright and early. Uh, our day starts around 4 a.m. when we start looking at the 20 plus weather stations that we have for our region. We're looking at the precip totals, the wind, what happened overnight, temperatures. Um, we see what the ski patrols saw during their control route and we start to put that all together. So by 5 a.m. we have a pretty good idea of what we're going to start writing for the day and we issue a dawn patrol hotline for all of our users getting out before they go to work. It's not going to be the full forecast, but it's enough to let them know what's going to kill them that day. So we like to give them the weather, any road closures, and then kind of like the bottom line statement. And then between 5 and 7 a.m., we're just plugging away um, and writing three products for Salt Lake, Provo, and Ogden. And by 7 a.m., we're trying to push public. We record another hotline, the full hotline, send out all the emails, and then do a quick radio blurb for the day. And that's kind of what goes into that big forecast that we put out. It's always an ongoing conversation every night before you do your forecast, or if you're handing off to another forecaster, we have a conversation with each other to make sure we're kind of on agreement on, you know, if this is what happens overnight, this is what we plan to do and vice versa. That's so interesting that you rely on observations of the public. How do people get that word to you? So on our website, we just have an observation page. Anybody from the public can submit information. And like I said, it doesn't matter necessarily what avalanche experience you have. You still have something valuable to bring forward. So even if you're just telling us what the weather looked like, like it was a bluebird day, light winds, and there was like soft settled snow, which almost any user can let us know, like it was a pow day. That gives us information versus if you go out and you're like, it was raining and there was a crust. That's, that's really valuable information for us as well. We have pro observers. So folks that we give a little bit of money per observation they give us and they are people that work professionally in the field and we really value their observations and those can be ski patrollers, guides. Um, and it just like helps us cover such a huge field because we don't have enough forecasters, um, obviously to cover every single zone that we forecast for every single day. 
Now, in addition to the uh, forecasting work that you do with the Utah Avalanche Center, so in when there is an avalanche, um, what type of work then is done like in terms of investigating by the Utah Avalanche Center? Yeah, so obviously we are in charge of the forecasting, but we're also in charge of all accident investigations. So whenever there is an avalanche, whether it be a fatality near miss or just accident, uh, we go into the field and we want to investigate the whole story. We want to go look at the crown. We want to see where it failed and kind of try to put everything together um, from more of a scientific standpoint, just paint the whole picture. And so that's what we like to get into the field, ideally the day afterwards, if we can safely and go look at it all, get some pits in, get the size, the scope, and get an idea of why and where it failed. And I think that's the uh, big thing we definitely want to be focusing on today was specifically how Last year was what the, I believe it was the most deadly avalanche season on record in the United States. Uh, yeah, that it tied. It tied. Tie. So it didn't surpass, but it was right there. Yeah. And I think it was, uh, and it was, was Utah, I, and I'm, I should know this being a Utah resident, but is, did Utah have the most fatalities of any state in the country last year? I can't be sure. I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure. I think Colorado might have beat us out. Okay. Um, but not the one, one not. you know. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um, not a competition you want to win. Not a competition. Um, it was like, yeah, a pretty, it was a hard year across the country. Almost every state was getting hit really hard, especially um, the continental west. Colorado and Utah had a lot of, lar a lot of like large mass casualty incidents, which kind of racked our numbers up fast. So Nikki, there were 37 fatalities across the U.S. last year, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when I look at the reports and the statistics, it happened pretty much across the country from New Hampshire to Wyoming, mm -hmm. California, Washington, Colorado, Montana. Seems like no place was exempt. When you as a forecaster look at that, was there one common theme to the season last year as far as conditions went? Yeah, last year was a really challenging year across the entire West, and a lot of us held a really similar snowpack. And we talked a lot about it between avalanche centers, um, and we continue to talk a lot about last year because we could see a similar setup this year. And the main thing that led to such an unstable snowpack last year was we had early season snow across almost the entire West. So from Montana to Colorado to the Pacific Northwest, they all got early season snow. And then it kind of shut off for December, part of January. We had cold temps at night, um, but not much precipitation. And what that does is it makes all that snow that was sitting on the ground uh, really weak and sugary. And what we refer to in the industry is faceted. There's the angular grains and that no matter what you do, they can't make a snowball. So it's like ball bearings. It's really weak. And that was now the base of our entire snowpack and the base of the entire snowpack across the West. So we saw this setup happening. It happened more uniform than we had seen it across the country in quite some time. And then once you put a lot more snow or wind or water weight on top of that, now you've got this strong slab sitting on top of this really weak faceted snow at the ground. And you're just kind of waiting for that tipping point to step into dangerous avalanche conditions. So that's what the entire West had. And I think that's what really led to so many fatalities across the country. And just kind of turning your attention at this point to February 6th mm -hmm. of last year, Utah experienced a really unfortunate accident in the Mill Creek area. This involved two groups of skiers and six people were buried and four people were killed and one person was injured. Mm -hmm. And I think we'd like to dive into that and, you know, not to cast blame or anything like that, but I think maybe looking back because there are so many conditions that maybe I would find myself in, in that scenario. I just kind of want to dive into that and see if we can see what happened there. Yeah, we can kind of just break it all down. So the Wilson Glades area, it's this north facing run about 500 vertical feet um, in Mill Creek Canyon, just below the peak, Wilson Peak itself proper. Um, Wilson Peak runs along the ridgeline that separates Big Cottonwood Canyon and Mill Creek Canyon. So it's a unique terrain feature in that you can access it from multiple trailheads within 30 minutes of Salt Lake. So you can get to it from both the Mill Creek Canyon trailhead, and you can also get from to it from Big Cottonwood proper. Um, like I said, they're both within 30 minutes of Salt Lake, so it, it makes for an easy access day. Uh, Wilson Peak is about like 
almost 10,000 feet, just under 10,000 feet. And the Wilson's Glade part of Wilson Peak is a north face or northeast facing glade, and it averages 20 to 40 degrees in slope angle. Um, the looker's left flank is a little bit steeper. That's where people tend to put a skin track. Um, the glade itself is uh, mid-20s to low-30s. Do you recall making an avalanche forecast for that day? Um, I did not personally write the avalanche forecast for that day. That day, the avalanche forecast was high on those um, upper elevation northeast-facing aspects and then considerable on those mid and lower elevation aspects. Now, what made it higher that day? So we've been dealing with this persistent weak layer um, like I said, like the entire country had been dealing with um, almost all season. We had this persistent weak layer. We knew that it primarily uh, existed on these north to east to northeast facing slopes because that's where the weak sugary snow sits the longest. So we knew that we had this persistent weak layer at the ground um, on those upper elevation northeast facing slopes. And that had kind of been an ongoing problem for almost the entire season. And then the week prior to the accident, we got a storm that deposited like 20 plus inches of snow and almost two inches of water. And we also had um, elevated winds up to 45 miles per hour the day before. So we had that weak faceted snow on the upper elevations. We knew that that existed. We'd been dealing with it almost all season. We got 20 plus inches of snow and we got some wind. So we just kind of had all the factors that lead to an elevated avalanche danger. Nikki, is this Wilson Peak area a place people would try to go to find low angle terrain typically? Yeah, like I said, it averages um, the low 20s to low 40s. And that's low 40s. The part of the slope where the crown was found is actually 31 degrees. So it's known for being a lower angle in comparison to a lot of other um, terrain features surrounding it. Also, like I said, it's within 30 minutes of Salt Lake, but it it's not necessarily the easiest terrain feature to access. So it's not quite as busy as some things like, say, right above Alta or right out of the car. Mm -hmm. Had there been a history of avalanches in that area before? There has been um, a couple near misses there. I believe the most recent near miss was just kind of a month before um, end of December where a skier... Uh, unintentionally like triggered a soft slab on those same faceted grains. So there's been a history of close calls and near misses in that area, um, but nothing uh, quite to this spectrum. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us kind of what happened that day as far as the parties, were they together or separate? And did they leave from the same spot? Did they see each other that day? How did, how did it play out? Yeah. So it's a pretty complex day. So there was two parties one group of five people and one group of three people. They were two separate parties. They didn't know of each other. They had never met each other and they didn't know that either party were traveling to the Wilson Glade area that day. Um, and they both entered from different trailheads, like I said. So the group of five people, they entered from Big Cottonwood Canyon from the Butler Fork Trailhead. So they headed up Big Cottonwood to the top of Wilson Peak and descended top down. Whereas um, the group of three people, they came in from the Mill Creek Canyon, um, Alexander Basin trailhead. It's a little bit longer. It's, you know, you walk on a road for a bit, you gain 2000 feet, um, and then you ascend up the skin track. Um, the first party, the party of five, call them like group A, they ascended from Big Cottonwood Canyon, got the top of Wilson Peak that day. Um, when they got to the top, they talked about techniques to safely descend the slope, where on the slope they wanted to descend. So the lower angle part of the slope, um, instead of going, say, skiers right or lookers left flank, like I said, they decided to go skiers left, a little bit lower angle, and they decided that they were going to um, ski one at a time. Uh, they talked about all these techniques to safely ski it. All members of that party were involved in that conversation. They never talked about whether or not they would ski that slope. It was kind of assumed, but they did talk about um, safe travel techniques. Um, group B, the group of three, they came in from Mill Creek Canyon from the Alexander Basin Trailhead. Like I said, a little bit longer, about 2,000 feet of elevation gain, quite a bit more mileage under their feet. And they came to the base of the ski run. They saw tracks on the slope, I believe, like about 14 tracks at this point. And they saw a skin track set to the um, like looker's left flank, but they didn't see any other skiers. They weren't sure 
if those skiers were even still on the slope where they were. Um, and they got on that skin track and began ascending um, uphill at that point. So it sounds like they were very experienced and they were taking a lot of safety precautions. Yeah, both groups had really open conversation. Um, many members of both groups had spent time in this area. There were a few uh, members that uh, either hadn't skied together before or were just recent to the area, but still experienced backcountry skiers. Um, but there wasn't necessarily a communication breakdown in either parties. They both had a plan. Um, and the lower party, the group of three, they hadn't um, entered any avalanche terrain yet. They were on a 25 degree slope having a conversation. So the group of three, they were down at the base of the slope. And where was the group of five when the avalanche finally cut loose? Yeah. So what happened? Um, the larger team, the team of five, they skied their first run. Uh, they skied their second run. After the second run, one of the members of the party, they were just a little bit tired. Um, they knew that if they were going to ski that third run, that you'd have to still ski up and then ski all the way out of big. So they decided to stay at the top of Wilson Peak. Um, the other four party members did their third lap and they were heading back uphill. Uh, like I said, they were moved through the trees as they were skinning uphill. They got to a steeper part of the slope where they, every other time, had decided to take a pause and then go one at, at a time from one large tree of kind of safety, area of safety, to another large tree through what they kind of considered the most exposed part of the skin track. And as they were waiting, or about to move across the steeper terrain, they heard a really large noise. They all of a sudden saw an avalanche break above them. Um, one party member, Chris, was able to grab onto a tree, and uh, the other three members um, got uh, caught, carried, and fully buried. At this time, um, the lower party, two of the members were standing on a 25-degree slope, waiting for the third party member to skin up to them so they could kind of discuss what their plan was for the rest of their day. And as they were standing there, they saw a wall of snow coming towards them. And that's the last thing um, any of them remembers. They remember seeing it moving pretty slowly, thinking that it wouldn't hit them. And then next thing they recall, um, for those that were recovered, was regaining consciousness. Um, Chris, the one who was able to grab onto a tree when the snow actually broke away from him, he was up in the air. He had uh, lost his skis, had the air knocked out of him, um, jumped down, started shouting to the other party member who was at this time at the top of Wilson Peak. Um, and they began their um, companion rescue at that point. I want to pause right there for a second. What was the slope angle at the starting point and the crown and how big and deep did this thing run? Yeah, so where we measured the slope angle for the crown was 31 degrees. So right above that well-known 30 degrees, but just a hair. Um, the width of this avalanche was huge. It was about 1,000 feet wide. It ran about 400 vertical feet, and that's because it ran into those dense trees. And the crown actually broke three and a half feet deep into uh, those faceted grains from uh, December. So this cuts loose and one guy clings to a tree and another person is at the very top. And how many people are caught? So seven were caught. That includes Chris because he was caught. He was able to grab onto a tree, but six were caught, carried and fully buried at this point. And then you've got um, the two folks who are begin their companion rescue. So right away, they turn on their transceivers. Um, Chris, the one who grabbed onto a tree, turns on his transceiver he grabs the person who was standing at the top, and they began zigzagging down the slope. They get their first um, positive like signal. Um, they zone in on the bat. They get a positive probe strike. Um, Chris digs what four to six feet deep, expecting to see somebody he knows, and the first person that he recovers is part of the other party. It's somebody he doesn't recognize, um, oh, which wow. I think came as a pretty big shock because at that point, he wow. it's somebody he doesn't recognize. He doesn't know how large this incident is. Um, it's somebody you completely didn't expect and you didn't know was also somewhere on the slope. Um, they clear his airway. Um, the first person recovered was able to gain consciousness, turn off his transceiver and begin helping with more recoveries. At that point, they continue to the next closest uh, transceiver signal. And yet again, it's another person they don't recognize. Um, it's another party member. And I think at this point, they're like, oh my gosh, how large is this incident? Because it's hard to know. You've now 
found two people that weren't part of your group and you know at least three of your friends, loved ones are out there somewhere. Um, so they recover uh, the second person found, they clear the airway, he is unconscious but breathing. So they don't fully shovel him out, they just clear his airway. At this point, Chris um, calls 911, gives a really brief idea of what's going on and then continues searching uh, where they continue to do signal searches for the next three um, people recovered, all whom were recovered four to six feet deep. And the following four people recovered um, didn't have a pulse or um, weren't breathing. So. The four people who um, were killed, were, mm -hmm. were they, when they were found buried, you said about four to six feet, did they lose their skis like uh, Chris did, or were they still attached to their skis and did that result in a deeper burial? Yeah. So one person, um, one of the people who died in the accident, he had lost one ski, but one ski was still attached and all of the other burials, uh, they all had their feet still attached or their skis still attached to their feet. And that could definitely have led to a deeper burial. Like I said, um, the first two people recovered, they had a little bit shallower burial and that was part of the lower party. And I just don't think they got carried as much. So they more just kind of got knocked over and snow swept over them versus getting caught up in that laminar flow, traveling downhill and having um, more snow, kind of the travel with them. But um, every single person that was recovered had either one or both skis still attached to their feet uh, when they were found. And I think a big part of that comes to it was an uphill travel. Um, both parties were traveling uphill at the time um, of the avalanche. We don't know what triggered the avalanche. It could have been human triggered. It could have been remotely triggered. It could have just been triggered by the wind. But both parties were traveling uphill. So all members of all the parties obviously were in uphill travel mode. They all had their toes locked out. Um, it's just a good reminder that um, like a third of avalanche activities happen on the uphill. And to think about... Um, what that means when your toes are locked out and when you are going downhill to definitely be conscious of having your skis locked out because those skis can kind of work as anchors and uh, drag you down deeper. So how many times did the party at the top ski that slope? So the party at the top had skied that slope three times. There was 14 tracks on the slope. By the time the second party arrived, they could see all these tracks on the slope and um, the upper party, they were, they were done for the day. They were skinning back uphill. They were going to get to the top of Wilson Peak and actually ski out to Big Cottonwood Canyon. That was that was their plan for the day. That's just terrifying to me because you get in that routine where you you know maybe the danger is rated more than what you're willing to put yourself out there for. So you go out there and you seek out a lower angle slope like these folks did 31 degrees or so. That's pretty mild. And then you go out there and then you ski it three times and you're pretty much done with your day and you've got tracks on there and you're thinking it's relatively safe and you're on your way back up and then it cuts loose. In your investigation, can you pinpoint what happened there? You know, that's the thing with persistent weak layers and why we don't treat them lightly. And we had been dealing with this avalanche danger for so long and we had left the avalanche danger elevated for so long as Persistent weak layers lead to really connected slopes. So you have this weak layer and it can connect a slope from lower angles to higher angles. Um, and it's kind of like a game of mind sweep. So when you're out there with these persistent weak layers, you could be skiing the slope your first run, your 50th run, and you find that shallower part in the snowpack that allows you to um, kind of impact that weak layer. And like I said, the slopes are really connected. So as soon as you find that low point, that mind sweep point. Um, it's like a domino effect. It can, um, trigger the slope. Uh, so just because you skied it before, it doesn't make this persistent weak layer any more or less dangerous. You're just looking for that one trigger point that you needed, that one shallow point or that one point that allows you to trigger the whole slope. You're talking about connected terrain. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So when I mean connected terrain, you know, you look at a slope and it's not just like one strip of terrain down that slope. Um, terrain, the outdoors, it's all, it's all connected. It's all interweaved. So when we write a forecast, we say, you know, stay out of terrain connected to or below avalanche terrain. 
because that persistent weak layer is like a row of dominoes and it can run from a less steep part. So from like a 31 degree slope to a 45 degree slope. But as soon as you knock over one of those dominoes, it's going to trigger all the way into that less steep terrain. Or if you're traveling below avalanche terrain and something occurs above you, you are still in the area of hazard. So when we talk about connected terrain, that's kind of what we mean is just making sure that you know if there is steeper terrain like near you to your skiers right to your skiers left or right above you because um, you can trigger these persistent weak layers on a less steep part of that slope or from below. So then talking about the element of connected terrain, how was it applicable to this situation at Wilson Glade? What was the connected terrain? Yeah, so the thing about Wilson Glades, the average slope angle was somewhere between the 20s to the 40s. What made this terrain so complex or you know more connected is where the crown was triggered was right at that 31 degrees, so right at that um, tipping point of entering avalanche terrain. But um, to lookers left or um, the left flank where the skin trap was, it was a little bit steeper, um, upper 30s to 40s. So, you know, as they were traveling uphill, they could have found that that one shallower point, um, that one overly loaded point. Um, or, you know, like I said, it could have been remotely triggered and connected into those terrain features that were less steep, that were in their low 30s or upper 20s. Just having a kind of very similar slope angle. So it being relatively close from, from the mid-20s to mid-30s, it allows you to kind of creep out accidentally into that slightly steeper terrain and find that um, tipping point. It does sound like that was the case there, just a huge consistency between those mid-20s and the mid-30s across that whole area. Yeah, it's really easy. Um, you just have to find that like micro feature. It just has to be like one roll over one point that just steps into that avalanche terrain that's just right over 30 degrees, and that's enough. It's enough to get that tipping point and to connect that slope. Yeah. Oh no. What was that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a thing joke. We were saying the, um, we did talk about some of these key points already, especially this first one with uh, slope angle, but, and other areas, but what would you say the big takeaways were the big lessons that could be learned from what happened at Wilson Glade that could be applicable for safety in the future so that, you could minimize the risk of something like this happening again. Yeah, I mean, the big takeaway one that I just talked about is if it's steeper than 30 degrees, um, it's avalanche terrain, especially when you're dealing with like a hard slab avalanche problem or persistent weak layer avalanche problem. Like if it's steeper than 30 degrees, if you're below a slope steeper than 30 degrees or connected to a slope steeper than 30 degrees, it's avalanche terrain. Um, there's no kind of fuzzy line there. So 31, it's enough to slide. Um, that's a really big takeaway point. Another one is uh, that avalanches do occur uh, on the uphill travel. I think that's something that folks often overlook. It's a time that we let our guard down. It's a time that you catch up with your friends. We ski as a group. You know, maybe you have music in either. Um, it sometimes feels like a different element than the normal, you know, downhill skiing. People really turn it on. They talk about the ways they're going to travel. They go one at a time. They've got heads up. You're paying attention, but um, a third of avalanche fatalities, they happen on the uphill. So maybe take that into your day-to-day -to -day tour planning, how you're traveling through terrain, and maybe be a little bit more heads up on the uphill and have a plan. Maybe don't use it just as social hour, but but know that you're still traveling in avalanche terrain and it still has that high hazard um, going uphill just as much as going downhill. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but it's actually can be a little bit even more dangerous if you do get caught, because like you said, you have your bindings in lock mode. Yeah, you're traveling in an uphill mode, um, you know, traveling downhill, you always think about it, you know, you take or you are more conscious about if you take your toes out of the lock mode, but traveling uphill, we all have our toes in lock mode, because that's how the skis are designed. The bindings are designed to be locked out for uphill travel. So being thoughtful on how you're traveling, because you have these things anchored to your feet. Um, I think another big issue with last year, and like I talked about right in the beginning, is we did have this kind of widespread problem across the entire country. Um, we'd been harping on it for months. Uh, we started to see, as forecasters, um, what we called fatigue. I mean, writer's fatigue. We were writing the same thing every single day without it getting any less safe. And so we wanted to try to get this message apart across 
And I think users were getting the same type of fatigue. You're reading the same problem every single day. You keep hearing about the same problem. And, you know, I think we were all pretty tired last year, just in general. We had a pretty complex couple months um, as a as a people. We've been dealing with a lot. <laughs> Humans are fatigued yes. last year. And um, I think people started to push it a little bit more because they were getting tired and they were seeing the same thing every single day. And when you see the same thing every single day without consequence, um, you start to push it a little bit more. So I think just having an understand that these problems, especially these persistent weak problems, if we are communicating that they're dangerous, they're just as dangerous day one as they are day you know, 40 of us putting out this problem. Um, once they become less dangerous, once they become, uh, you know, more deeply buried, they start to heal. We'll drop the danger, and that's when you can start pushing it. But before that, um, take a step back. It's, it's not the time. It's not the problem to push it in. And I think feeding off of that, this was something Mary and I had talked about before, how scary it is when you're in terrain that you've done before, you're familiar with it. It's almost like an old friend or you've done multiple rounds in a day like group A did. Mm -hmm. And then that's when it breaks. And then suddenly it's now you have an avalanche in area that you were very comfortable with. I think there's this element of comfort with familiar terrain and where there still needs to be an element of being very careful every time you go through that terrain. Oh, hundred percent. And I mean, it's a, we all fall into heuristic traps and you talked about this earlier. I think this accident really hit home with a lot of backcountry users because it was a lot of decisions that most of us could see ourselves making, being in lower angle terrain, traveling one at a time, skiing the slope multiple times and not seeing any obvious red flags um, on that slope. They did see recent avalanche activity on other slopes in the area, which was a red flag, but they didn't see any red flags on the slope that they were traveling. So I think just being aware of the personal heuristic traps that you know you fall into, if that's familiarity, you know you're where you go and you find yourself kind of letting your guard down there, or you go out with an expert hail, or you're traveling with somebody who you think has more experience than you. So you just knowing your own heuristic traps and what you fall into, I think is a really good element we can learn from this and paying attention to what we're doing moving forward. So Nikki, did they report any like whomping or cracking of the snow that day? They didn't report any whomping, any cracking. Um, when they were up on Wilson Peak that morning, they saw recent avalanche activity on another slope nearby. They actually took photos and submitted it to us at the Utah Avalanche Center. We put it on our Instagram. Um, it was a red flag that they saw was recent avalanche activity, but they didn't see recent avalanche activity on the slope that they were planning to ski. Forgive my ignorance, but I'm still learning about backcountry skiing. What is whomping? <laughs> So whomping, um, it's a funny word. It's one of those words that, you know, sounds like what it is. So when you're traveling um, on a lower angle slope, you'll literally hear a large like whomph or collapse, we call it. Um, and what that is, is that weak layer failing. And if you were on a steeper slope, it would have been an avalanche. So it's a really obvious red flag that if you get whomping, you know that that structure exists for an avalanche and you just weren't on a slope steep enough for it to slide. And it's a really bad feeling. <laughs> and it's spooky, that's for sure. Yeah. Got to have that stomach dropping in an elevator feeling or something like that. Yeah. If you're on a low angle metal, it's pretty cool because it is just that, you know, you know that an avalanche could have occurred and it, you know that that structure exists. If you're on anything steeper than, you know, a flat meadow, it's, it's not as cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So taking away from this accident, would an alpha angle help from the bottom looking up whether those people group B was in the yeah. wide zone or? Yeah, alpha angle, it's the, you know, maximum angle that uh, an avalanche could run in a traditional cycle and paying attention and knowing what alpha angles are for terrain. That can be a little bit complex for, you know, the average person traveling in the backcountry. I think the big takeaway for that is knowing what type of terrain just is above you in general. Um, if you have slopes steeper than 30 degrees above you, then you're, you're traveling in avalanche terrain. Um, we talk about it, you know, making sure you're not traveling below or in avalanche terrain. So I think really just paying attention when you're making your tour plan and seeing where your uphill track is going to be. If there's any avalanche terrain above you and connected to you. Um, and especially as we're moving into a time that more and more people are entering the backcountry. It's no longer, you know, 
assuming that you're going to be the only party in the backcountry. So maybe it's starting to assume that other parties may be traveling above, near, or with you. And just plan your tours accordingly. Just not exposing yourself to overhead hazard if you don't have to. The other question I had about, you know, checking out something like Alpha Angle would also be like digging a snow pit and analyzing uh, the layers. Like, what would you recommend for that? Oh, yeah, 100%. So whenever you're going to the backcountry, you know, you're making your own assessments. We put out the avalanche danger every single day, but we want our users to be investigating things on their own, um, either making their own discoveries or ideally just confirming what we're saying. And one of the best ways to do that is first to be following the avalanche forecast day to day, make it part of your life. Um, you know, we all check Instagram in the morning, make your next thing, checking the avalanche forecast in the morning, whether or not you're going to ski. So you have an idea of what's going on with the snow, going on with the weather, and you have a pretty good idea of what the layers should look like. And then when you get into the backcountry on those days, you are able to make it, put your shovel blade in the snow, look for those layers we talk about. So we've been talking about this persistent weak layer. Um, if you put your shovel in the snow, you would have seen that really weak faceted snow on the ground. And then from there, you can do some stability tests. That's Those are skills that you learn taking an avalanche course. And it, it allows you to um, kind of confirm what the forecast is telling you. Um, on that same note, I don't think a snow pit should ever sway your decision-making in less conservative. So if you're planning on skiing a slope less than 30 degrees, like if you're like, okay, today I'm not going into avalanche terrain, but I still want to dig a pit. I want to see what's going on out there. And you dig one pit and you all of a sudden don't see this weak facet of snow. I never think it should sway your initial plan or plan into a less conservative. So you're like, okay, I dug this pit. I didn't see the weak layer. Let's center punch it now. Um, I think Snow pits actually it can only sway you to more conservative. So maybe you were hoping to go ski this line. All the stars seem to align when you're at home making that plan, reading the forecast, looking at the weather. Then you get into the field, you dig a pit on a representative slope. So the same aspect and ideally same elevation, doesn't have to be the same slope angle. Stay out of avalanche terrain when you're digging pits, but a representative slope. And then you dig a pit and you see a layer you didn't expect, or you see that weak layer still reactive. I think it can push you in a way more conservative layer in your or decision-making and being like, okay, actually today's not the day, but a pit alone should never push you to go center punch something that you uh, didn't think you were going to do from home. So it's just another tool to kind of confirm your decision-making, um, not make your decisions in the field. So always dial it back. That's good advice. Um, <laughs> always dial it back. <laughs> Nikki, can you go into danger ratings a little bit between moderate, considerable, and high? Yeah, so we have this North American danger scale. Um, what that does is it talks about the likelihood of avalanches versus the size and distribution of avalanches. And with each um, danger rating, or we assign kind of travel advice to go with it. So we go all the way from low to extreme, and it's an exponential scale. It's not, um, you know, a just linear scale. Um, and the moderate to high is kind of the most complex area to be in. Low is pretty straightforward. Um, and extreme is also pretty straightforward. You know, that's the day to maybe like drink hot chocolate and hang out at home and don't even like look at avalanche train. But that moderate to considerable day uh, can be a little bit more complex. High just means that there's very dangerous avalanche conditions, that natural avalanches are likely, human triggered avalanches are very likely, like almost guaranteed, and that we're going to see a lot of large avalanches in many areas. Um, moderate on the other side is that there's heightened avalanche conditions. It means that avalanches still could occur, but natural avalanches are unlikely and human avalanches or human triggered avalanches are going to be smaller and in more specific areas. And considerable is kind of that middle ground. And considerable is one of, I think, the hardest days to plan on because it means that dangerous avalanche conditions exist. Natural avalanches are possible, but it's not like, you know, the walls are falling down. On high danger days, natural avalanches, we're expecting to see them. On considerable danger days, we think natural avalanches are possible on certain terrain features, but it's it's not necessarily widespread. But human-triggered avalanches are are likely. So we've got this kind of swath of danger ratings. And when we issue a danger rating, uh, we also always issue like travel advice and what we recommend for people to do when we put those danger ratings out. Yeah. And that kind of explains it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's a lot. 
It is a lot. And, you know, it's always hard for me to understand the difference between moderate and considerable. I mean, I, like you said, I totally get high or extreme or what's the lowest one? The other one. Low. Yeah. Low. The low. Green one. Yeah. <laughs> low. Uh, but the, the two in the middle there are just, they, they're kind of elusive to me. I guess people should take those and put their guards up. Yeah. And I think the most important part with any of these danger ratings, obviously you're going to see that color when you check the forecast, but going a little bit more in depth in our bottom line, we're going to give you that travel advice because a lot of the danger rating also depends on the type of problem that we're dealing with. Like I've been talking about this whole time, persistent weak layers are really challenging. There is a little bit of a difference between dealing with a moderate or a considerable danger day with a persistent weak layer versus a moderate or considerable danger day with just new snow. Um, new snow instabilities are a bit more predictable. You, you know what's going to happen. You just got a bunch of new snow. You're probably going to see either loose snow avalanches or soft slab avalanches, likely breaking at skiers' feet, in-terrain features that um, the slab is contained to. Considerable danger days with this persistent weak layer, they're just more complex because you have those connected slopes. You're triggering deeper hard slab avalanches and they linger on in the snowpack for so much longer. So it's really crucial to just go beyond just looking at the color for the day and read that bottom line. And then I really recommend everybody read what's going on with each individual problem because we know these are complex problems. And as forecasters, our job is to kind of boil that all down and make it digestible for all users. And that's what we're gonna do in the problem discussion. We're gonna tell you what we know and what we don't know and what we recommend you do for that day. That's great. Yeah. So Nikki, it's mid-November, you're in Utah. How are things looking so far for this season? <laughs> uh, well, you know, there's good news and bad news. Um, some good news is I've been able to ride my mountain bike. Some bad news is we got snow in October. Um, and we've got a couple other systems since then, but nothing producing a ton of precipitation. And what that could lead to is a similar snowpack as last year. So like I talked about, these faceted grains come when you get early season snow. It sticks around at those high upper elevation cold aspects. So those north aspects, those east aspects. And then over the cold nights, it becomes weak, it becomes sugary, and it sets up to be the base of our snowpack for the season. So Right now, I was kind of hoping that if the snow started, it just wouldn't stop. Um, but right now, it's looking like we could have another setup for some weak snow at the ground. But it's hard to say. Could it recover? Could it recover? Yeah. So the there's multiple ways that weak grains like this recover. It takes time. That's the big one. And, you know, there's no set, like, day or time period. It's we need more snow. We need incremental loading. And we need for that weak layer to be, like, insulated. So... The weak snow is driven, or the faceting is driven by temperature gradients, um, which is getting a little bit sciencey, but it just means like shallow snowpack um, with cold temps. Now you can lessen that temperature gradient by just having a deeper snowpack that insulates that snow. So um, if we get more snow and we get incremental loading, um, we can potentially heal this snowpack over the season. It'll just take time and snow. Keeping the fingers, fingers crossed then for incremental. Yeah. Incremental yeah, snow now snow. over the next month. More snow, warm temps, um, and just time. <laughs> It'll always take time. So, yeah. yeah. Great. Are we missing anything? Is there anything you want to add for avalanche safety for this year? Um, uh, one of the biggest things you can do um, early season is just start getting your ducks in a row. So right now, as we don't have a ton of snow, it's a really great time to get out. Remember all those skills. This Wilson Glade incident was a heroic effort um, in companion rescue. And it showed that Chris knew what to do in crunch time. And the only way that you can do this is by practicing these skills. So take the time when the snow is low, get out with your friends and practice companion rescue. Put some, you know, make it fun, put a beer on it. Whoever got the like fastest time, everybody else has to buy them a beer, you know, or beverage of their choice. But these are skills that are perishable. And if you don't practice them in low stress situations year after year, when the high stress situation comes, you're not going to be able to perform a, a companion rescue like you know your loved ones deserve. So get out there, take this time to practice companion rescue. And if companion rescue isn't something you're comfortable with, take this time to sign up for a class. Classes are filling fast. Avalanche education is always a great one to get under your belt early season when maybe we're not able to ski those big lines that we want to quite yet. 
And of course, look things up on YouTube and watch lots of videos. I know there's lots of videos out there that people can, when they're not in a class, just get familiar with different avalanche safety techniques. Oh yeah, there's so many resources out there. If you go to the utahavalanchecenter.org education, we have a Know Before You Go program or knowbeforeyougo.org. We have online modules that you can just practice from like the comfort of your couch. Um, so you can practice those skills or refresh on those skills uh, online. So look for those resources. Right now is the time to use it because, like I said, if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, and these skills are perishable. So get ready now because you want to be prepared when the worst happens. It was a really hard incident. I think it hit the community really hard. And I hope that out of this tragedy, folks can move forward and learn a lot. And we don't see something like that in our skier community again, because it hits hard. Yes, our hearts go out to the families and those who perished. I mean, it's mm -hmm. devastating. Thank you so much, Nikki. It's some great information you've shared <laughs> yeah. with us. And we really appreciate it. Knowledge is a yeah, very powerful can. weapon. Thank you, Nikki, for your expert insight into avalanche safety and to the details of the tragedy at Wilson Glade. Our hearts go out to the victims and their families, and our sincere appreciation goes out to the responders as well as those who work at both the Utah Avalanche Center and all avalanche centers across the country. Thank you for helping to provide us all with the tools and insight we need so we can better understand the potential risks we face in the backcountry so that we can both have wonderful experiences and return home safe. If you would like to learn more about the Utah Avalanche Center, feel free to visit utahavalanchecenter.org. And of course, don't forget to check out avalanche.org or your local Avalanche Center to learn more about avalanche courses as well as avalanche forecasting. If you like today's show, we'd love it if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a nice glowing five-star review. And if you have a little more energy left after that, feel free to check us out and give us a follow on Instagram at outandbackpodcast. And then finally, if you haven't already, make sure to head on over to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get a 40% discount on a Gaia GPS premium membership through the end of 2021. Gaia GPS premium membership now includes our awesome brand new Gaia winter map and slope angle shading and snow depth layers and avalanche forecast maps and, well, I could go on and on. I'm Shanti along with Mary. Thanks for joining us today and stay safe out there, everyone. We'll see you next time on the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Bye-bye.